This Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. This is a day when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit to the church. Every year it's the 49th day after Easter Sunday. Why 49 days? You remember we've seen in the last few weeks, Jesus kept appearing to the disciples and teaching the disciples for 40 days after the resurrection. And then there was the ascension. He returned to glory. Then nine days later, we have the Jewish feast day of Pentecost. It was Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, January the 5th and January the 12th of this year, we looked at the coming of the Holy Spirit in the second chapter of the book of Acts in great detail. I would commend that might be something that you would like to do on Pentecost Sunday or as we think about Pentecost, to go back and listen to those messages. So instead of returning to Acts this morning, we will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul speaks of the preaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. I must tell you that Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings, I read 1 Corinthians chapter 2 more than any, or I would say more frequently than any other passage of Scripture as I prepare to preach. So, Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things 
freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths for those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you this Lord's Day morning, once more separated geographically, but together before you as we worship. Our Father, once more, we come as your as your priests. Praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Praying for the world around us. Oh, Father, ever teach us the privilege and responsibility of being priests. Priests for each other. Priests for our families. Priests for our neighbors. Our Father, we pray for Tony Hunt this morning as his infection has recurred. We pray, Father, that you would bring healing and use the surgery of this week to bring healing, a permanent healing to his knee. Give him patience with this. Our Father, thank you for the good news about Tyler's grandmother, Juanita Burge. Thank you for the recovery that she's made for the conversations that she's had, that she's able to eat. Oh, Father, we pray that you will bring an end to this paralysis, that she might regain motion in her body. Our Father, we pray for Amanda Vanderpool's mother, that you would bring healing to her. We pray for Billy Griggs, Father. Remember him. We pray, our Father, that you would strengthen him physically and strengthen him spiritually for this time in his life. Our Father, we pray for Claire Reddit. For Claire Reddit. For Ray Lynch. We pray that you would improve their eyesight. Bring healing to their eyes. And now as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. Father, John Sartell cannot preach so that it will make any difference in our lives, so that we'll be changed from the inside out. 
in our lives through the power of your Spirit. And we pray that once more again this morning that you would teach us, Father, teach us. We're your children, and that's our request. Teach us from your Word. Change us. Maybe some of us for the first time. We pray for the glory of Christ. And in his name, amen. The unseen preacher. If you were to understand Paul's ministry in Corinth, you must understand some things about Corinth. Corinth was located on an isthmus connecting northern Greece to southern Greece. An isthmus is a narrow strip of land connecting two larger pieces of land, like northern Greece and southern Greece, that has a body of water on each side. On the east side of the isthmus of Corinth was the Saronic Gulf. On the west side of the isthmus was the Gulf of Corinth. It was four miles across that isthmus, from one gulf to the other. Because it was much easier to take small ships or large cargoes four miles across the isthmus, it was easier to do that than to sail 250 miles around the peninsula of southern Greece. That peninsula was known to be treacherous to first century sailors. In fact, there was a saying at that day, quote, a sailor never takes a journey around the Cape of Malia unless he writes first his will, end quote. There was not a canal across the isthmus until the 19th century. However, in Paul's day, a road, a four-mile road, had been built across that isthmus. That enabled small ships, to be put on wheels and pulled across the isthmus. Large ships unloaded their cargo and had it transferred to another vessel in the opposite gulf. Thus, Corinth was a huge center for east-west trade, for west-east trade. It was a center for north-south trade, as it was a major port of entry and departure for sea traffic from and to Africa. Why am I telling you this? Corinth was notorious for its trade. It was a city known for its international flavor. It was known for a blending of races, a blending of creeds, a blending of nationalities. Above all, it was notorious for wealth, and for sexual promiscuity. There was no city in the first century that equaled the reputation of Corinth in immorality. In the Mediterranean world, the word used for someone who was deep into debauchery was the word Corinthiazane. It, it was translated living like a Corinthian. You saw someone living a debauched life. You're living like a Corinthian. 
outside the city of Corinth, a hill slanted up toward the Acropolis of Corinth. Right at the foot of the Acropolis, at the top of the hill overlooking the city, was the great temple of Aphrodite. It was known the world over. There were a thousand temple prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite. In the heart of the city was the famous temple to Apollos. This temple was dedicated to the sexual virility of men. There were also temples or shrines to Poseidon, Athena, Hera, Hermes. Listen, listen for a moment to the different writers and scholars as they spoke of first century Corinth. Quote, this mongrel and heterogeneous population of Greek adventurers and Roman bourgeoisie with attaining of infusion of Phoenicians, a mass of Jews, ex-soldiers, philosophers, merchants, sailors, freedmen, slaves, tradespeople, hucksters, were agents for every form of vice, end quote. Another writer wrote, the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his gain by all and every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength. Those are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires, end quote. One more writer. In addition, there was the temple of Apollo in the city itself. Apollo, the god of music, song, and poetry. Also the ideal of human, or the ideal of male beauty. Nude statues and mosaics of Apollo in various poses of male virility fired his male worshippers to physical displays of devotion with the gods' beautiful boys. Corinth was therefore a center of homosexual practices. Folks, this was an affluent, affluent culture. There were not, not only were jobs plentiful with merchants, the trade-related jobs, but the city also taxed all material which passed through the area, traveling west to east, east to west, or north and south. There was a tremendous income for the city. The city that Paul entered in 49 AD was inhabited by a quarter of a million people. Now stop there. What if you were in Paul's place? What if you were faced to taking the gospel to this great city? There was no church there. No message of Christ. This was Las Vegas, New Orleans, Amsterdam, and San Francisco rolled into one. Even Paul was intimidated. Look at verse 3 of our text. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and much trembling. Paul is, he spent a year and a half 
in Corinth. He left, and he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. And he says to them, when I was with you, when I came to you, I came in weakness and fear and much trembling. This is the Apostle Paul, fearless, experienced, battle-trained in the gospel. Yet he uses three words to describe himself as he entered Corinth. Weak, afraid, and trembling in that fear. This was not hyperbole. Luke was with Paul, and he wrote about Paul's fear in the book of Acts when he was in Corinth. We read it in Acts 18, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. God had to intervene. He had to intervene supernaturally to relieve Paul's fears. Corinth was a daunting challenge for even this seasoned apostle. Why? Why was it so daunting? One reason has to be he had to be asking himself, how does one build a church full of godly people out of such perverse wickedness? He had to look at the city as he walked through it and say, a church will come out of this perverse, wicked mess? Look at Paul's honesty when he wrote the letter back to the Corinthian church. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually, immoral, the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Did you hear it? The last Five words, and such were some of you. You see, Paul did not search through the city for several upstanding moral men to fill the church. The church of Corinth was built from wicked, wicked men and women being converted. This was not some run-of-the-mill, casual wickedness. This was wickedness, immorality, perversity on steroids. Now, Paul had preached in hard places, but those places had not been Corinth. In those previous cities that had not known the depth of the depravity of Corinth, he had been beaten, he had been jailed, he had been left for dead. If they did that to him in those places of lesser evil, what would infamous Corinth do to him. That was one source of his fear. Another source was the content of the message that he brought to Corinth. Corinth was an international city. It was a city with many, many messages. 
the Romans brought a message of salvation. Salvation through power and pleasure. Power and pleasure. The Greeks brought a message of salvation through the philosophies and wisdom of this world, through worldly wisdom. The Jews brought a message of salvation through their own morality. Paul was bringing a message of salvation through a crucified Jewish Messiah. How could such a message compare to the Romans' message of power and pleasure? How could such a message compare and appeal to the worldly wisdom of the Greeks? How could such a message appeal to the very moral Jews as they did not need a Savior? Certainly not a crucified Messiah. That was another reason for his fear. You know, the great temptation, the great temptation of every age is to change the content of the gospel message to make it appealing to the world around us. To make it appealing to the currents of this world. To adapt the message to appeal to the pleasure and power of Rome. To adapt the message to appeal to the worldly wisdom of the Greeks. To adapt the message to appeal to the morality of the Jews. We can understand this. This is exactly what happened to the 20th century church in America. This is what we did. You know the story. Large parts of every denomination in this country adapted the message of the gospel, changed the message of the gospel to fit the culture. They did this and kept redrawing the lines until there was no longer a crucified Christ. Until there was no longer a holy God who demanded justice, cosmic justice, for man's wickedness. Paul, when he was writing back to the Corinthians, reminded them that he kept the gospel message on track. He did not deviate. It's right there in that wonderful verse. Look at it in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I did not come to you with worldly wisdom, the wisdom of this world. I did not change the message of the gospel to suit the worldly wisdom of the Corinthians. But he also reminded them that he did not come to them with lofty speech. Now that phrase is different than message. Lofty speech, that's how the message is delivered. The NIV uses, translates that word eloquence. Eloquence is not 
the message. It's how the message is delivered. Now, Corinth was a Greek city. Greeks were renowned, renowned for their oratory ability. You would think the Lord would have said, I will send the Greeks my message by using a man of tremendous oratory ability. But Paul was right here, specific, that he was not a messenger with great oratorical ability. He had his message. He would not deviate. His message was Christ crucified as the Lamb of God for our sin. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This meant He preached Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. This meant that He taught Jesus that Lamb, that He was the Lamb that God brought as a sacrifice to atone for man's sins. This meant He preached the resurrection. But how? How did He get that message across? The answer to that question is crucial. Now, most of us think, yes, the message must be true to Scripture, true to the gospel. We must not be compromised. We must always be Christ in Him crucified. That's got to be the message. But then we think the content of this gospel must be communicated by a gifted communicator, a gifted speaker. Is that not how we think? It's how I think. I drift into that. We all do. But Paul didn't speak of his ability to communicate. Do you know who Eutychus was? He was a young man in Troas. One night, Paul was preaching in the city of Troas. And a man named Eutychus, a young man named Eutychus, was sitting in the seal of a third-story window. Paul's message was a little long, and Eutychus fell asleep, and he fell out of that third-story window. At first, they thought he was dead. It's a bit humorous. You can read it in Acts 20, verses 7 through 12. My point is this. People fell asleep when Paul preached just like we do with all preachers. So how was Paul's message communicated if it was not by his unusual oratorical ability? Look at verse 4 of our text. 1 Corinthians 2, 4. In my speech and my message, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, capital S, in demonstration of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a demonstration of my ability. It was a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. Look at verse 10. He keeps repeating this. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. These things God has revealed to us 
not by my ability to communicate, but by the power of his spirit. Look at verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand this, the things freely given us by God. Do you see it? We've received the spirit that we might understand, that we might know the things given to us by God. Look at verse 13. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul was not the message. Too many times today, in our, even in our evangelical pulpits, the preacher, the minister, becomes the message. Paul understood he was not the message. The message was Christ and him crucified. But also Paul understood that in some ways he was not the messenger. The Holy Spirit was the preacher. The Holy Spirit was the teacher who revealed the gospel, who revealed the mind of Christ. We thought about this before. Remember the disciples? That motley crew of fishermen who spent three years with Jesus, those men became the greatest preachers in their world. They literally changed the world. They preached the gospel from Spain to India. What did Jesus tell them? You spent three years from today, you're ready to go. Go out. Just as he was leaving, he said, you go back to Jerusalem and you stay there. Don't go until you have the Holy Spirit. That is why Paul was saying what he did. Do you understand now why I read this passage? so much, so frequently, before I preach. It reminds me, I'm not the message. The message is Christ and Him crucified. And I'm not even the messenger. The Holy Spirit is. This means that all of my preparation, that, that all of my preparation means nothing unless the Holy Spirit speaks. This means that your faithful attendance means nothing unless the Holy Spirit opens your ears to hear and your eyes to see. Spend a half hour on Sunday morning praying that God will speak to you. That you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to pray that I'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, but I want you to pray you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then He'll open your ears. Then He'll open your eyes. If you are filled with the Spirit, and have his ears, you can hear a monotone preach and be set on fire. We must just say it this way. It's just this simple. When John Sartell preaches, it must be the Holy Spirit who speaks, who teaches. When Tyler preaches, it must be the Holy Spirit. When Blake preaches, if it's to be effective, it must be the Holy Spirit. When Bill preaches, it must be the Holy Spirit. When Mike preaches, it must be the Holy Spirit. You say, well, John, what about talent? You laugh and you say, 
we don't want to, when it comes to singing, we don't want to hear a, a tone deaf singer. Well, I can tell you, the Holy Spirit can use even a tone deaf singer. He can overcome those natural barriers. You know that. On the other side, we may have Pavarotti sing and the Holy Spirit do nothing. It's the same with the preacher. Some men are indeed gifted orators. One of the most gifted I've ever known in the ministry was Eric Alexander, Dr. Eric Alexander. He was senior minister of the Tron Church in Glasgow, Scotland. He's retired now. He could describe a flower with such words that you could actually see and smell the flower. On one occasion, I was preaching at the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology at 10th Presbyterian, a historic church in the heart of downtown Philadelphia. Of course, there were other speakers there. But one of those speakers was Eric Alexander. As I walked into the pulpit, this huge pulpit that evening, I looked down and right there, just a few feet away on the front row, with his Bible open, looking up to me, was Eric Alexander. I immediately thought to myself, I'm supposed to preach and not be intimidated with this man sitting there. I was just overwhelmed. But I thought back about it. He was sitting there with his Bible open. looking expectantly at the pulpit. He was locked into what this young amateur would say. Why? Because he had heard about me? No. He barely knew me. He was expecting the Holy Spirit to speak. Get his Bible. He was praying that the Holy Spirit would teach him. Does God use gifted personalities? Certainly. And we're blessed by such men. George Whitfield was like that, the great preacher of England. He was once preaching to a great, he, was, he, he took the gospel outside of church buildings. He preached an open field. He was preaching to a large crowd. And in that large crowd were a large number of sailors. And in preaching the gospel, he was using an illustration of a sinking ship, of a shipwreck. And he so graphically described it that suddenly one of the sailors just caught up in it, shouted, man the lifeboats. He was just carried away. It was so real. Such was the preaching of George Whitfield. But God is more apt to use the uneducated fishermen of Galilee because then everyone will know it is the Holy Spirit and not the individual 
who happens to be speaking. Remember when Peter preached the first time? 3,000 people were converted. God can overcome the stammering monotone. Early in my ministry, I encountered a man who had a huge impact on my life. His name was Dr. Bill Hill. He was a Presbyterian minister. He led a revival across the Southern Presbyterian Church in the 1960s. He led an organization called the Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship. If you, if you had seen Bill Hill, seen his physical appearance and heard him speak, you would not have said, I want that man to be my minister. He was very short. He had had polio as a child. He walked with a limp. His hands were crippled. He had gray hair, and he parted his gray hair in the middle. He always wore a black suit. He usually had kind of a, a dark, thin tie. He spoke in a very deep voice like this. Very conversational. Very monotone. There was not much inflection. There was no animation. But he was one of the most powerful preachers that I ever heard. He was not a gifted orator. But he was powerful. I've only known one preacher in my lifetime that could come to the end of the sermon and say, let us pray. And the congregation would fall to their knees. I saw that happen several occasions at the end of his messages. He had preached with such power. I'm often asked, John, what's the greatest sermon you ever heard where you were present? It's easy for me to answer. The illustration of the power of the Holy Spirit I ever saw was on a Saturday evening in the sanctuary at Independent when Dr. John Richard DeWitt was preaching the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology was meeting there at Independent. That evening, Dr. DeWitt preached for over an hour. It literally seemed like five minutes. It was just that rapid. I remember during the messages, during the message that tears were flowing streaming down my face because I'd never heard anything like this because I knew it would soon come to an end. I didn't want it to be over. The congregation was mesmerized. The presence and power of the Spirit was palpable. R.C. Sproul was in the balcony that evening. Dick prayed after he preached. I had my head bowed. I looked up at the end of his prayer, and there was R.C. standing in the pulpit, hugging Dick DeWitt. So overwhelmed. So powerful. In a society that is hedonistic and filled with celebrityism, how do we keep the church on the right path? 
How do we keep from becoming like the culture around us? Example is there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Exalt the gospel. Preach Christ and Him crucified. Yes, to some it will be an offense. Because they're so good. To others it will be an offense because they're so educated and it seems like nonsense. But to those who are being saved, it will be the power of God. Exalt the Holy Spirit. Pray for the Holy Spirit to speak. Pray for the Holy Spirit to fill the preacher. Pray for the Holy Spirit to open your ears. Pray in thanksgiving. And give the Holy Spirit His due to the glory of God the Father in Jesus Christ. For He is the unseen preacher. Amen. In a moment, we will sing an appropriate prayer. A prayer asking for the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Before we do, let me give a benediction. A benediction is not a prayer. It's a declaration of God's blessing from Scripture. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen.